Okay, so good evening. Thank you for your good wishes on the move. Greetings from Teaneck. It's, uh, thank, thank God it's, uh, it was, as moves go, it was good. And so now it's just about the boxes for a while. If you know me at all, you know that the first thing I do upon moving ever is I immediately attack with such great ferocity my books to make sure that they get back on the shelves. Once they're there, then I feel like I'm at home and the rest of the boxes don't matter. So within 12 hours of the move, every single shelf and book was found and restored and that's it. Now it's home. So, so this is good. And this is also, this is also it. Our final session of the two year journey that we've had here with our Nach survey. And, uh, so we're going to do something people were asking me a couple of weeks ago, which feels like a very long time ago. I don't know about the rest of you, but moving can be very intense in that regard in Ben's time. Uh, what book are we going to do, given that we finished all of them? And, uh, so I, I thought of this problem long... Yeah, it wasn't a problem. I, I knew that this was coming down the pike. I wanted to talk about a book that isn't in Tanakh as a way of kind of wrapping up our series, and that is the book of the Maccabees. The first piece of this I actually did pre-Hanukkah or on Hanukkah, right when I came to KJ a couple of years ago at a Sudash Lishit. It was a brief thing. But I want to take this somewhere completely different. So even if you heard that, don't feel, oh man, the last thing is something we've already done. Don't worry, that'll just be the first 10 minutes or so. One thing that that frustrates me a lot about Hanukkah, actually, it's nowhere near Hanukkah, it proves that I never time things based on seasonal, it's all based on, you keep keep the order of learning and you just march. But in the meantime, one of the weirdest things about Hanukkah is that we don't have a text. Drives me up a wall. I love Purim, because there you get Megillah Esther, we get to do all the stuff that you and I talked about a little while ago, but not, not so far back anymore. Everything has a text. The biblical holidays, the Torah holidays, have plenty of material to work with. Hanukkah is zero. And the Talmud is very little. The Talmud is just a couple of laws pertaining to the kinds of oils and wicks you're allowed to use. There's one brief historical comment, and that's really, that's really it. And it's kind of distressing. The, there actually is a book. I've never read this book, and I probably never will, although, hey, you never know. But I, I don't, I don't, this is not high on my, boy, I wish I had some time to actually read list. This isn't part of it, but it's, it's cool that the book exists because it's symptomatic of the issue. It's called Ner Lemea. I don't know if any of you have read it, heard of it. Ner Lemea. Lemea, like a hundred. And it's simply a compilation of a hundred different answers to pretty much the only question that rabbis know how to discuss on Hanukkah because there is no text. Which is, well, wait a second. Uh, why is the holiday eight days long if, after all, they found that thing of oil... And it, burned, it was supposed to burn for one day, and then instead it burned for eight. Well, that means that the miracle part was seven. Right? The first day, okay, as long as you have a decent wick, the oil is going to burn the one day that you thought it was going to burn. So really, the holiday should only be seven days long. Now, somebody compiled a book called Ner Lemea, where they compiled a hundred rabbinic answers to this question. Now, to me, without knowing, I know some of the classic answers, I'm sure you do too, Whenever you have a question that has a hundred answers, that means, boy, do we not know what we're talking about. But in this case, but in this case, it's more than just we don't know what we're talking about. It means that there's nothing to talk about. Right? It's that everybody had to have the same theme at some point in a Hanukkah sermon because there's really not a lot of room. Now, this is frustrating to me. It has been for a very long time. And one year, I finally sat down and just read the books of the Maccabees which, you know, we have children's books that kind of paraphrase them a little bit, but I just read through them. And it was this revelation moment for me of like, okay, it's interesting that these guys wrote texts that sound very biblical. If you've read the books of the Maccabees, chapters and verses, it sounds biblical, it draws parallels to earlier texts that are in the Bible. And what's interesting is that they obviously were hoping that somebody like the sages would include these books in the Bible. In other words, our survey course could have kept right on going. I would have had to come back from Teaneck for another year just to keep going with this course. right? And somehow these books were excluded. Not only are they not in Tanakh, but the sages never mention the books of the Maccabees. Go through the entire Talmud, all you Dafyomi people who do a page a day over a seven-plus-year cycle, you keep right on plugging, you will never find reference to the books of the Maccabees. Or for that matter, to a whole slew of other books that were written in this time period, in the Second Temple period, that we now call the Apocrypha. What does Apocrypha mean? Books that are to be hidden. In other words, these were books that were written as biblical books by Jews in the Second Temple period. They were hoping that they would be included. The sages said, no, they're not part of our Bible, and they need to be hidden lest people read them, and then they might think that it's part of the Bible. 
And that's terrible. You don't want that to happen. You don't want to crisscross. You want everybody to understand this is our scripture and this is not. And so in order to avoid any problems, the sages simply put a ban on these books. You have to hide them. You're not allowed to have them out. Some of them were written by very religious Jews indeed. But all the same, they're not here. So the question comes up, of course, well, why are these books not included in the Bible? After all, it would have done us a big favor for Hanukkah. So one answer, which is so lame, but probably close to the truth. God's name is in it plenty. So they're very religious books. What language? I don't, I, I used to know the answer to that question. I don't remember if it was written in Hebrew and then translated to Greek, or if it was written in Greek and then translated to other languages. Don't remember. People know the answer to this question. I'm just, I'm, I'm blank. It shows how little attention I've given to it because it's not part of Tanakh, right? That, that one year that I finally sat down and read it was kind of like my Yetzir Hara, my evil inclination of kind of, I want to I understand what we're blocking from tradition here. And it was fascinating to me. Probably one of the major answers that is given by contemporary scholars to why the books of the Maccabees are not included is because, sorry guys, too late, the canon is closed. Tanakh is already done, and we simply will never include any other books. Okay, so that's a time issue. It has nothing to do with its contents. It all is simply about, sorry guys, bad timing. If you would have written yourselves 400 years earlier, true, there would be no story of the Maccabees yet, but also true, you'd have a shot. All right, so that's maybe part of the story. Another part of the story might be more historical, which is that the Maccabees themselves were very righteous, but you should see their grandchildren. They were awful. Some of those grandchildren, the Maccabees, their claim to fame is that they battled against the Hellenizing Jews. They prevented assimilation. They stuck up for the truth. Good for them. But their grandchildren became Hellenists, and they massacred rabbis. Bless you. They massacred rabbis. They killed rabbinic people. A lot of them. It was a horrible time. These these grandchildren were awful. So the sages, the sages... I I don't blame you. I'm very depressed about hearing about massacre of rabbis, too, for all kinds of reasons. So it could be that the sages said, look, the Maccabean victory is useless if their grandchildren were a problem. We don't want their books included in our canon. Now that might explain a personal problem that the sages had with the Maccabees. It doesn't explain why they would exclude all these other books. right? You know, there are many other books written, not the books of the Maccabees. Judith, Tobit, all the Ezra editions, the Daniel editions, Jeremiah, even Esther editions. There are all kinds of editions, all kinds of stuff. And the sages did not include any of these books. So it doesn't explain fully why that's going on, but okay, it might be part of the story. To my mind, having read the books of the Maccabees, I think that there's another conceptual explanation, which is at least part of the story of why the sages excluded the Maccabees. The Maccabees were very religious people. They fought for the temple, they fought for Judaism, they fought for the Torah, they fought for God, all very clear. But the And they were fighting not, you know... There were different versions of this story that went on through history. But at the beginning, the main fight that they had were against fellow Jews. Jews were at war with each other, as is often the case in one form or another. This was a particularly nasty fight over what do we do with Hellenism? And one group was totally involved. They said, we have to just adopt Greek culture and become part of the big world that we live in. And the Maccabees were dead against that. They felt that the assimilationists were causing a great disservice to the Jewish people. And they fought for... Proper Torah. That's all very good. Well, the question is, how do you go about fighting for it? The Maccabean view of all of this is, you need to actually kill some of these Jews who are violating the Torah. Take law into your own hands. Become zealots. And that's what the Maccabees themselves celebrated. If you look at source number one over here, here we have Matityahu, the father of the Maccabees, so to speak, the, you know, the starter of the revolution. His son Judah the Maccabee is the most celebrated of the bunch, but there were five sons, and they led the battle against the Hellenists and their Greek, Syrian Greek allies. When he had finished uttering these words, a Jewish man came forward in the sight of all to offer a sacrifice upon the altar in Modi'in in accordance with the king's decree, meaning here comes a Jew to bring an idolatrous sacrifice as per the king's decree. When Matityahu saw this, he was filled with zeal, and trembled with rage, and let his anger rise, as was fitting. He ran and slew him upon the, upon the altar. So Matityahu grabs his weapon, and goes after this guy, and kills him. He acted zealously for the sake of the Torah, as Pinchas acted against Zimri, the son of Shal- It's really Salu, but Salom here. Matityahu cried out throughout the town in a loud voice, 
All who are zealous for the sake of Torah, who uphold the covenant, march out after me. Mila Hashem Everybody who's on God's side, join me. And of course, the righteous people join the Maccabees. The rest is history. They fought the good fight for a few years. They finally beat off the Syrian Greeks and defeated the Hellenists, reconsecrated the temple. We have a holiday. We know the rest of it. Okay. This passage is so telling about why we studied Tanakh, because the Maccabees understood why we studied Tanakh. It's not a history book. It's not poetry. It's not any of that stuff. It's God's word, and it's coming to teach eternal lessons. The Maccabees understood that very well. So who are their role models in this story? Both Matityahu himself, the hero of this passage, and also the author of the book, the person who's writing this passage. There are two heroes that Matityahu and the author of the books of the Maccabees have in this paragraph. Who are they? One of them is Pinchas. That's the easy one because he is mentioned. What's Pinchas's claim to fame in the Torah? He's Aaron's grandson, Aaron's grandson, one of the Kohanim. Yeah, he was... He was the one. Sorry again, yeah? He killed the man of war before the came in That's exactly right. There's a terrible story after you, and it's told very well, but it's a very depressing story in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, where people of Israel are at the brink of entering the promised land. It's the 40th year. They're yay close to finally going in there. And then you have this whole terrible fiasco, really one of the worst sins of the desert, even though the golden calf is the one that makes it more famously. But this is, this is in many ways worse. But it's certainly pretty up there. And that is where Moabite and Midianite prostitutes show up. They seduce all kinds of Israelite men. Before you know it, idolatry is on the table. And it's just a big disaster. And nobody quite knows what to do. Moshe Rabbeinu and his leaders are all crying. And finally, Pinchas grabs his spear as these two people, including the leader the leader of the tribe of Shimon, publicly I don't know if they were fornicating in public or they made a public spectacle and then went into a tent. Either way, this was really gross and really beyond sacrilegious and otherwise obnoxious. Pinchas says, that's it. I've had it. He grabs his spear, mows them down, and the plague stops and everything is done. That's the hero for Matityahu. Matityahu is saying, okay, here's our modern-day Pinchas situation, and I'm the modern-day Pinchas. Here's an Israelite worshiping idolatry. Now we could say Jew. Here's a Jew worshiping idols. And yes, there are court protocols and a Sanhedrin, and there's supposed to be witnesses and testimony and a trial. That's how we normally do that. But Matityahu says it's time to act zealously, just like Pinchas. So he grabs his weapon, kills the guy, and starts the revolution. That's hero number one as far as this passage is concerned. In other words, they're looking at the story of Pinchas, now, by the way, how do we learn the lesson from Pinchas? How do we know what we should be learning from that story? Well, Matityahu's point of view is, regardless of whether we agree with this, that, well, God rewarded Pinchas in that story. God said, Pinchas acted zealously in my name, therefore I'm blessing him with an eternal covenant of priesthood. And that's very nice. And this is God himself cheering him on. So if God himself cheers Pinchas on, it sounds like this is a model to emulate Make sure you stay to the end, because I'm going to disagree with that last sentence. I don't agree with Matityahu at all. But that's how Matityahu and the author of this book, that's how they feel. Who is the author of the book? I don't know. Do people people who really love the Maccabees, that's all I can tell you. About, a very, when was it written about? Second century BCE, first century BCE. The Maccabean story is second century BCE. Okay? So there's a second hero of this story that is implicit rather than explicit. The explicit one is Pinchas. The implicit one is, who else said, Mila Shem Eli? Who is on God's side? Come with me. Join me. Matityahu himself. But who is he copying? In the Torah, there's a story where... Even better than that, but you're on the right track now. Moshe Rabbeinu at the Golden Calf said that. When Moshe sees the Golden Calf thing going down, it's a disaster. He says, Mila Shem Eli, who's on God's side? Join me now. And the tribe of Levi joined him. And Moshe Rabbeinu called for a massacre of the of the golden calf people. 3,000 of them get killed on that day. Again, not a, no court protocols, no Sanhedrin, no trials, just one big-time massacre, and that's it. Play again, same thing. So the two heroes of this passage are Moshe at the golden calf and Pinchas at Baal Peor. And Matzitiahu's point of view is we need to learn from that story. That Moshe and Pinchas obviously are the righteous role models of the Torah. God praises both of them very soundly. I'm going to be like they were. 
Okay, and then, source number two, on his deathbed, now Matityahu is now passing the torch to his five sons. When the time drew near for Matityahu to die, he said to his sons, My children, be zealous for the Torah, and be ready to give your lives for the covenant of our fathers. Pinchas, our ancestor, don't forget, Pinchas is a Kohen, and the Maccabees were Kohanim. So at least their tradition was, Pinchas was their biological ancestor. He wasn't just a role model to them. The Maccabees hail from, or so they claim, from this same Pinchas. Pinchas, our ancestor, through his act of zeal, received a pact of priesthood for all time. So it's very clear what the message of the books of the Maccabees are, or at least the first book of Maccabees here. That is that there is a time for religious Jews to act very zealously against fellow Jews, including killing them. And the role models that they can invoke are Moshe at the Golden Calf and Pinchas at Baal Peor. These are emergency situations. These great saintly individuals took their weapons or called for others to take weapons. The God-fearing people killed the not-God-fearing people, and God approved of their actions. And therefore, since Tanakh contains eternal lessons, well, the right lesson is to emulate them. That's exactly what Matityahu is saying. Now, the sages of the Talmud agree with Matityahu's way of reading Tanakh, right? Which is that we're reading it for eternal lessons from God. But our sages are not keen on the message that they are drawing. They're not so sure that religious Jews should apply zealotry to non-religious Jews. In fact, they uh, are against it. So the sages, they're masters of this. I'm sure I've mentioned this principle time and again. They're masters, really masters, of eating their cake and having it too. They're so good at this. Because this is a thorny situation for them. On the one hand, it's easy to draw the lesson that Matityahu and the Maccabees drew. It really is. Moshe and Pinchas are heroes in their respective stories in the Torah, and God approves of their actions. So it's very easy to say, okay, so religious Jews should always be like that. Now the sages are going to say, no, don't be like that. But how can they disagree with God? So here comes a passage in the Jerusalem Talmud where they eat their cake and have it too. Pinchas did not act in accordance with the sages. That's a pretty bold statement to make, given that God showed up in that story and approved of Pinchas. So here we go. Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi said, the sages wanted to excommunicate him, meaning they imagine that standing around Moshe Rabbeinu on the court were rabbis. Okay, the rabbinate didn't quite exist yet, but that's okay. That will never stop the Talmud from imagining that the rabbis are placing themselves in the shoes of the biblical characters. And they're saying, if we were there, We would have excommunicated him. You can't do that. You can't take the law into your own hands. Of course the people doing the Baal Peor sin were terrible people. And the proper protocol is, therefore, to have witnesses and warning and a Sanhedrin, put them to trial, and one by one, case by case, determine whether they're guilty of execution. But you can't just grab a weapon and go kill them. That's not okay. That's vigilante action. Correct. So, yeah. Well, what about the original Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not murder. That's not important then. It's certainly... Leave her alone. There are instances where the Torah permits killing human beings. Self-defense, capital punishment. So, so as a result, it's on the books as there... And this is the capital punishment one. In other words, here's people sinning capital crimes... Idolatry slash maybe adultery, but certainly idolatry is on the on the books. So the point is that Pinchas killed another person who is guilty of death according to the Torah. But the sages say he might be guilty of death, but it has to go through court court proceedings. You can't just pick up a weapon and kill him on your own, Charlie. How could they have excommunicated him if they didn't warn him ahead of time? You're okay. So you're taking their imagination and plugging it into reality. What the sages are doing is evaluating what religious lessons they want to learn from the story. They can't excommunicate them. They can't jump back in time like that, and they know it. What they're doing is they're trying to say, what lessons should we religious Jews learn from that story? So what they're saying is, the rabbinic policy toward zealotry is, don't do it. Right? We will excommunicate you if you ever do this. 
Oh, so how do we explain the God part in the story? So Rabbi Yudab and Pazi said, the sages wanted to excommunicate him, were it not for the divine spirit that jumped in and said that he and his descendants shall have an eternal covenant of priesthood. Meaning, the sages, if God didn't say anything in the narrative, the sages would say, okay, Pinchas did this, but that doesn't mean it's okay. In fact, we think it's wrong. This is our value system. Our value system is you don't impose zealotry. You don't go out there and grab weapons and kill sinning Jews. You put, bring them to trial if need be. Oh, so we can't criticize Pinchas because God saved him. What the sages are saying is, if you're not Pinchas, don't ever try this at home. That's how you eat your cake and have it too. Right? In other words, what they're doing here is they're taking a story where Pinchas is praised by God himself. And they're turning it on its ear. They're saying, fine, Pinchas could do it only because after the fact, God approved. But if we were there, and God didn't show up and give him this covenant, that would have been the end of Pinchas' career as a Kohen. He would have been thrown out of the community. We would have treated him as a murderer, not as a religious zealot. That's what the sages are trying to do. So now plug that back to the Maccabees. And you realize the sages are saying, we can't have the books of the Maccabees in the Bible. Because the second we allow it, that means that we're approving of the message. That message now becomes the religion. And that religion would include religious zealotry. And that's exactly what the Maccabees were gunning for here. The Maccabees wanted to say, we the Maccabees, and their supporters, whoever wrote these books, are saying, that's religious Judaism. And the sages are saying, no, it is not. And therefore, we're not going to include it in the Bible, or else it would be. And we're not even going to mention it. Go through the entire Talmud, they're censored, they're banned. The Maccabees are not the good guys. Because the Maccabees, even though they were fighting for the right cause, they believed in the same God that the rabbis believed in, they were fighting for the temple, they, they fought for good things, they had the right instincts. The problem is that they were zealots, that they codified Moshe's and Pinchas's zealotry and said that religious Jews always should behave that way against non-religious Jews. And the sages said, absolutely not. So what the sages now need to do is rework Hanukkah because the Maccabees are an important part of Hanukkah. So the way that they go about doing that is preaching a totally different message. Here are two of my personal favorites. One is source number four. Hillel, who lived about a century, less than a century after the Maccabees, one of the greatest sages ever. Hillel used to say, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and bringing them near to the Torah. As far as he is concerned, as the consummate sage, you don't be like Aaron's grandson. Don't be of the disciples of Pinchas, who sees people who are sinning and kills them. Be of the disciples of Aaron, loves peace, pursues peace, and brings people close to Torah, of course, through words. Teach Torah, teach the proper Torah values, and hope that people will get closer. That's what the role of the sage is. It's not to be like the Maccabees. But my favorite piece of the whole thing is, what Haftarah should you choose for Hanukkah? Because after all, somebody had to make a choice. So there actually is a minority rabbinic opinion, which is what we don't do. But I have no doubt in my mind this is what the Maccabees would have picked. There's a story of the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah, at Mount Carmel. Elijah at Mount Carmel is in 1 Kings chapter 18, one of the celebrated stories just in general, is where the Baal worship was very strong in Israel. There was a lot of paganism going on and... The fiery prophet Eliyahu himself, Elijah the prophet, goes after all, the entire country. He takes on the northern kingdom. King, queen, and all the people. He, he's, he's so spectacular. And in that story, he challenges the prophets of Baal. Whoever can bring a fire from heaven is the winner. Prophets of Baal yell and pray all day. Nothing happens, of course. And then Eliyahu's like, okay, God, this is your moment. You bring some fire here. They're all going to believe in you. Bam, fire comes from heaven. Everybody says, Adonai, hu Elohim. Hashem is really the true God. They massacre the prophets of Baal. And for at least one minute in Eliyahu's otherwise tormented life, he's a very happy man. I like that moment. All right. So that's all. Now that passage, we actually do read as the Haftarah for the golden calf, for Kitisa. Because those two passages match. Here you have two prophetic figures taking on idolatry and calling for a massacre, and God approves. Well, there was a minority rabbinic opinion that said that should be the Haftarah for Chanukah. 
Because after all, the Maccabees also were religious zealots who were battling against non-religious elements within the people of Israel at that time. But that view was nixed. We don't want that to be the Haftar Afra Chanukah because that characterizes zealotry as a good thing. So what did we make it? Passage in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, where the pro- one of the last prophets, at the beginning of the second temple period, he sees a menorah, there's olive oil flowing into it, and the punchline is in source number 5. He said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I is Zechariah the prophet. I see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl above it. Then he explained to me as follows. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. Okay. When this is the punchline of the Haftarah for Chanukah, what they're saying is, it's not about the war. It's not about the Maccabean violence. It's about the Spirit of God. That will prevail. This was a very conscious choice of the sages to make this the Haftarah of Chanukah. They're saying that the Maccabees were fighting for the right cause, but they used the wrong means. We don't want zealotry and violence to be the heart of our religion, because it's not. It's about words. It's about the spirit of God. That's what will prevail and bring redemption. And so the sages, thought, they really just ate their cake and have it too, and had it too. They celebrate Moshe and Pinchas, but they say the Maccabees are not the next link in that chain. The Maccabean version of Hanukkah is incorrect, and we're not going to celebrate it that way. Rather, we celebrate the peaceful side of it. One bonus fact is that the books of the Maccabees contain many miracles, meaning the authors of the Maccabees, books of the Maccabees, wrote about many miracles that God did during that period, celebrating God's approval of the Maccabean behaviors. One miracle that you won't find in any of the four books of the Maccabees is the miracle of the oil. Not there. So many miracles going on, but not the oil one. Whereas the sages focus on the oil thing and ignore all the other miracles that you might find in the books of the Maccabees. That's also part of their move, right? The sages are saying all the things that they think were miracles are not, and God doesn't approve of that behavior. We're going to celebrate publicizing the miracles of God, celebrating the temples. It's a quiet holiday. And that's how the sages wanted it to be. Just as a footnote, in the medieval period, when, bless our Jewish people, uh, we were suffering inordinately in all Christian and Islamic lands. It was a tough time across the boards. That's when songs like Ma'o's Tzur were composed, which celebrate the the military victories. That's when the Al-Hanisim begins to be said, where they celebrate the Maccabean victory over pagans, not over the Hellenists. Right? There are all kinds of things that celebrate the Maccabees in a totally different light because the Jews felt vulnerable and persecuted. And suddenly the Maccabees were a good role model for strength. Here were a bunch of Jews that stuck up for the religion when everything was falling apart. And God helped them. Suddenly the military side got revitalized in the medieval period. But the original rabbinic version of Hanukkah is as benign and peaceful as you can ever imagine. Now, that's the Hanukkah piece of the puzzle. But now I want to take it beyond, and that'll kind of bring together our whole course. Tanakh is not just a scrapbook of ancient texts. What source number six tells us, and we've been running with this source the entire two years course, you know, Chazal, our sages ask, what makes Tanakh Tanakh? It's not just whatever ancient documents they had available, they stuck it into a scroll. Where did it come from? So they said there were plenty of prophets who wrote books, and they're not included. So the sages answer, only the prophecy which contained a lesson for future generations was written down, and that which did not contain such a lesson was not written. Whereas the Tanakh isn't just a record of what people were talking about thousands of years ago. Tanakh is, is words for us. Right? And the sages say that this was a conscious effort, that the one the books that they included, the passages that they included, are specifically eternal. They might have been given in certain contexts to certain people, and in fact many of them were given in certain contexts to certain people, but they have eternal relevance to the Jewish people, and that's why we continue to learn them. So that's what Tanakh is as opposed to what the sages wanted to make sure the Maccabees never became. Right? Which is not eternal lessons. Here's a, here are propaganda books written by people promoting their own cause, but it's not the eternal truth of the Torah. That's what the sages were trying to say. And the sages go out of their way to prevent Jews from reading these books. Now, by the way, those bans have been relaxed, which is why I didn't feel guilty reading the books of the Maccabees. The bans in the 
Talmudic period were very strong because th- these books were, they looked biblical. And pe- Jews really might think that they are biblical. Now there's nobody in the world who would read the books of the Maccabees and say, oh, I guess this is part of the Jewish Bible. Everybody knows that it's not. Right? Anybody reading it, any preface of, of the book that you're going to look at, you'll know right away. But at the time, when it, was, when it was really out there, when it was close to the time that they were written, people thought that they really were. And that's why you have source number seven, severe bans against even reading these books that should be hidden. All Israel have a portion in the world to come, for it is written, your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That's the part we read in synagogue all the time. Before everything, before reading Mishnah, it comes up in, in weekly services. But here's the part that they don't read in services, right? But the following have no portion therein. Meaning after saying, everybody has a share in the world to come, that sounds very cheery, that's the part that makes it. But this next line is, and here are the people who is, are not part of that everybody. He who maintains that the resurrection is not a biblical doctrine, that the Torah was not divinely revealed and an apikorah, somebody who degrades the sages as is typically understood. Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads uncanonical books. So by the way, you know, if you're looking to save bookshelf space, this, that, that's a lot of stuff. The sages explain what it means to read uncanonical books. You have, you have sources 8 and 9 to modify that. In the Jerusalem Talmud, Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads uncanonical books, such as the books of Ben Sirah and the books of Ben Lahaga. But he who reads books of Homer and all other books that were written from then on, it is considered like one who is reading a secular document. The sages had no problem reading books. They just had a problem with the Apocrypha. With books that were written by Jews for the sake of inclusion in the Bible that were not included. Those books were scary to the sages because the sages worried that Jews might read them and think that they are part of Tanakh. Because that's something that's very frightening to them. Because then you read the books of the Maccabees, you're like, okay, let's grab a spear and have it nearby in case I see Jews violating the Torah here and there. Right? That really could happen. So to avoid that consequence, the sages put a severe ban against reading these books. And in, in the Talmud, in source number 9, Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads uncanonical books, the Tanah taught, this means the books of the heretics. Rabbi Yosef said it is also forbidden to read the book of Ben Sirah, which is one of the apocryphal books that, we, that, that never made it to Tanakh. These sources, coupled with the whole Maccabean discussion that we've just had, really calls attention to what I think is what our course has all been about. When you read Tanakh as a believing Jew, its words, its literature, its poetry, its history, its all the stuff that you could read in any other book, or at least different forms you'll read in, in other books. But when you read it from a perspective of faith, it actually is totally different, because there's a prism that you're looking at these words as opposed to any other words. So when I read the books of the Maccabees, okay, it's written by Jews, it's an important story that I, I like Hanukkah very much, other than the no-text problem, right? But you read it with a different pair of eyes, then when you're reading Tanakh and all of a sudden you say, this is God's word and this is what's teaching eternal lessons and forming the heart of our faith. So one who is, you can really see the sensitivity about the books of the Maccabees because the sages understood what the difference is between reading scripture, God's revealed word, and versus reading any other book. And the possibility of confusing those two categories is, is the danger. That's why they were so concerned about books like Books of the Maccabees. The goal of the, goal of the course was to try to go through the heart and soul of the Tanakh, God's revealed word, filtered through the prism of the greatest of, of the last 2,000 years of scholarship. Which brings us to one last final question. Let me just run with this for a little while. So why did prophecy end? Why does our survey have to end? Like, why all of a sudden, abruptly, around 5th century BCE, biblical books stop? And so suddenly the survey course is done. Like, it can't just be you ran out of ink. You know, you can always make more books, and we Jews, bless us, we've been writing books, we're, we're good at that. There's plenty of books that come out. Huh? Culture tainting from the environment. Hmm? Culture tainting from the environment. Oh, so, 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 as a result of printing. So it could very well be that the, the Jews had absorbed too much from around them and no longer had the authenticity of the purity of their original faith. Okay, good. Prophecy ended. Hmm? Prophecy ended. Prophecy ended. So good. So here's the funny thing about prophecy ending. First of all, it didn't. Did you ever ride a subway? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but on a more fundamental level, there's no categorical statement in our tradition saying that prophecy ended. 
It's just that Tanakh stops. And so the sages, looking at that evidence, notice, oh yeah, there's no more biblical books beyond 5th century BCE, so Malachi must be the last prophet. It's exactly what you're saying, Charlie. In other words, tradition understands that's when prophecy ended. But it's not that the book of Malachi says, after this point there shall be no more prophecy. So how do we know that prophecy stopped? And more importantly, why did it stop? So here, of course, the real answer is, as always, I don't know, right? But there's some really fascinating answers on the books that I wanted to just explore with you as part of the way of closing the survey. In other words, why did the survey have to stop? Why, why is it that the prof- prophecy suddenly is done? And suddenly, all other books are books. They might be very important books. The Talmud is extremely important. Rambam, Rashi. We've had no shortage of truly impressive and important books that have been written since the Bible. But none that have the stamp of, this is God's word. Rather, it's great human beings writing great literature that we need to pay attention to. So the classical answer to why prophecy had had to end, going back to Charlie's point, is that something bad happened. It's a terrible thing that prophecy stopped, right? Prophecy begins with Adam, and it goes till the Bible ends. The entire Bible is predicated on there are certain individuals, not everybody, but there are certain individuals through the entire biblical period where God can and does communicate with them. And then suddenly, boop, God doesn't communicate with anybody anymore in that, in that way. So the usual answer that you will find is either the Jews sinned too much in some form, whether it's acculturation, whether it's idolatry, whether it's assimilation, whatever's going on, some kind of sin. That's one standard approach. And God is punishing the people of Israel by depriving them of the supreme gift of God communicating directly with them. Okay, could be. Another classical answer, which again, many, many adherents to this one just as much as the first, is the destruction of the first temple broke the back of prophecy. The destruction of the first temple was so cataclysmic, we spent so many sessions here talking about that. Well, it was cataclysmic. The temple goes down, the ark is gone, God's presence is no longer overt, and with it goes prophecy. So that's not unrelated to the sin thing, but again... (coughs) That specific catastrophe that broke the back of, of, of prophecy. So those are the standard answers. And by the way, they could very well be correct. I don't know, but that makes a lot of sense to me, right? That God's saying, if you don't want prophecy, if you're not going to listen to the words anyway, I'm not going to give it to you anymore. That's essentially what that approach comes down to. There are a couple of other conceptual answers that are very different from that, and I just wanted to present them as well. One is by the great 20th century thinker, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler. He quotes rabbinic passages that seem to have biblical roots that idolatry was no longer a problem at the beginning of the Second Temple period. We had many other problems, but not idol worship. All the idol worship that you see in the First Temple period suddenly vanishes from the condemnation of the Second Temple prophets. So cool. Really interesting. And so he says that's actually related to the disappearance of prophecy. That idolatry was such a powerful force in the ancient world, God needed to give prophecy as an antidote to that. To kind of keep everything in balance. Once there's no more idolatry, well, there goes prophecy too, because God wants to keep us with free will. If there's no urge to idolatry and there's prophecy, then we'll all be God-fearing, but it's not free choice anymore. We'll just be overwhelmed by, prophet, by, by, by prophecy. Correct. Rabbi Dessler says that that's why prophecy had to stop, to keep balance in the universe, to give us free will. We need to be able to make the right religious choices on our own without being overwhelmed by some external force, even though that force is prophecy itself. Perhaps the most fascinating answer that's out there is by one of those great Hasidic thinkers. His name is Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. Lived in the 19th century. Standard, you know, standard Hasidic story of somebody who grew up in one of the great Eastern European yeshivot, not as a Hasid, and then became a Hasid, and so he had the learning coupled with Hasidut. That was his, that was his style, and he was a very creative thinker. So he makes a, he just, he's, he, by the way, his theory is completely made up, but it matches the biblical evidence much more than the standard rabbinic slant on how to read the biblical period. Of Lublin imagines, let's say you were a God-fearing Israelite living in the first temple period, and you wanted to know what God said. Who would you go to? A prophet or a sage? So he imagines, he, oh, so you're, you're, you're good. But he imagines that most people would say a prophet. Why? Because a prophet knows what God wants. A sage is a great scholar, but scholarship is fallible. Right? 
So Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin imagines, it's a totally made-up conceptual framework, but it's a really fascinating one, that's why I'm presenting it. He imagines that most God-fearing people, if you, <laughs> if you can go to somebody who can tell you, Hashem, this is what God says, well, that's way more persuasive than, well, after a careful analysis of 27 different sources and dealing with these contradictions and trying to synthesize it all together, this is my opinion. Opinion? I want to know what God says. I'm going to go to that other one. right? That, that, so he imagines that as long as there's prophecy, rabbinic Judaism doesn't have a prayer. Because nobody's going to go to the sages. And if nobody's going to sages, nobody's asking questions, then halakha, oral law, can never develop. Because that's how it develops, when people have questions that hadn't been thought of before. Now the sages have to see what principles apply, what are the available principles, how similar is this case to the old case. That's what happens. That's how halakha has changed quite substantially in the last 3,000 years. Right? So it has to. It has to live with the times. And so, but as long as there's prophecy, nobody's going to the sages. They're all going to the prophets. That's what he's, he's imagining this, Okay. So he says that, but there's a, a fundamental flaw of relying on prophets for knowing God's word. And that is, you cannot derive principles from prophecy. When a prophet tells you something, it's for this moment, for you, for now. You can't even apply that prophecy to tomorrow. We discussed a dramatic one. I'm just, is not talking about this, but I'll talk about it because we've spoken about it a year ago. Where the prophet Isaiah in his day, in the 8th century BCE, told the people, God says he will save Jerusalem for God's name's sake and for the sake of King David, you know, for the covenant he has with King David, and then God miraculously saves the city. Less than a century later, the prophet Jeremiah shows up and says, God told me that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. Well, the people said, what are you talking about? The prophet Isaiah said, he'll never do that. Jeremiah said, that was then, this is now. That's what prophecy is. That was then, this is now. There's no principles, it's just, here's the, this is what God told me for today. But there's no eternal principle coming out of that. It's simply what is relevant for today. Sages don't do that. Sages don't just make a ruling for this moment. They try to derive principles that can be used as precedents for down the road. They're trying to develop a system. It's not just, okay, question, answer, Same question to another person, different answer. No, 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 you're trying to develop a system with principles. That's how the oral law works. So Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin says, with the death of prophecy, that's terrible, nobody's going to make this into a good thing, but something good came of it, something very good came of it, which is, suddenly we could take prophecy and convert it into eternal principles. And that, by the way, is what we've been doing. We've been following, when, when, when any traditional Jew learns Tanakh, that's what we're trying to do. Right? We don't imagine, some, some religious Jews to this day, it drives me up a wall, try to create a one-to-one correspondence. They quote some prophecy in a vacuum, and they say, that's what's happening now. This prophecy is related one-to-one correlation to now. People do that all the time, go online, see all kinds of stuff, sometimes very frightening stuff. But that's actually not what traditional Jewish learning is. Traditional Jewish learning is taking those now prophecies and converting them into eternal principles that can be applied to all time. And we fight about what those principles are. That's interpretation for you. But that's what, it, that's what traditional learning is actually all about. So one very positive outcome of the end of prophecy is now we have a collection of sacred texts that we must use to derive principles for religious life for the next 2,500 years and running. And one other very important positive outcome that came from the disappearance of prophecy, I may have mentioned this Talmudic passage at some point in this course, because it's my favorite passage, and I can't believe that I did a two-year course with you and never mentioned it. But if I never did, my fault, but see, that's why there's tonight. But, but I'm, sure, I'm sure I may have mentioned it. But in the meantime, I, I'm not sure which one, but well, I could look through and figure that out too. Passages in Tractate Shabbat, it's the classic... Midrash about how God held the Mount Sinai over everybody's head. Have I mentioned that here? I'm sure you've heard of it, but I, I hope I, I'm wondering if I did it here. Anyway, the passage is that the Talmud imagines that God held Mount Sinai over the people of Israel as they were about to receive the Torah. And he said, so guys, you want to accept the Torah? And they're like, okay, put the mountain down. You know, it's that, it's that kind of... Now, it's a great Midrash, and it's based on a hyper-literal way of reading that the Talmud often does, which is, Vayamdumi tachti tahar. which literally means they stood at the base of the mountain. Nothing very exciting here. The exciting part is the revelation that we're going to read about in less than a week. Right? Okay, good timing. Chanukah had nothing to do with today, but at least we got something. For for Shavuot there. 
But then you have this great question. It's my all-time favorite question of the Talmud, to be immediately followed by the, my favorite all-time answer in the Talmud. Like, if you don't believe in the sages after this passage, I don't know what you're looking for, because this is, this, is, this is what it's all about. There's somebody named Rabbi Acha, who says, you know, that's a great midrash and everything, but doesn't that undermine our whole religion? Yeah, it's like, I thought that we were all observing the Torah because our ancestors accepted it willingly at Mount Sinai. There was an eternally binding covenant. Hmm? We accepted Purim. Oh, so that's, that, that's, the, that's that next line of the Talmud. You're good, David. That's exactly what's happening here. But Rabbi Acha asked the question in all of its bluntness, which is, wait a second. I thought this was a mutual covenant here. And if you're telling me that God compelled the people of Israel to accept the Torah, that undermines it for all of us. Now, again, bless the sages, because this is... They, they are honest people. They want, they connect to God, but they don't, they don't hide behind pat answers. They ask very, very harsh questions that really get to the roots of what it's all about. And then comes Rava. Rava comes back with his answer. And, you know, imagine a kid in school, in any yeshiva day school in the world asking this question today. They would be shut down so fast they wouldn't know what hit them. Right? But not Rava. Rava says, actually, Rava, you're right. I can't answer that one. But... That in Purim, the Jews re-accepted the Torah, and that's what ratified the Torah. What Ravah is saying is, there, he's agreeing with Rabbi Acha. We have a problem. Judaism is a re- revealed religion. God revealed the Torah to us. That's, that's what makes it Judaism. The Torah is at the very heart and soul of what it's all about. So revelation is not a marginal point within what our religion is. Our religion is a revealed religion. Okay, that's easy. But what this Talmudic passage is struggling with is that revelation cripples free will. That's what it's saying, right? It's saying that if you hear God's booming voice, how in the world are you going to say no? There is no choice. As long as God's word is speaking to you, there's no real choice at all. It's too overwhelming. And Ravah's answer is, actually, you're right. That's a paradox of a revealed religion. It wasn't freely accepted at Sinai because the people of Israel couldn't freely accept the Torah at Sinai. Prophecy was too overwhelming. God's voice is booming to them. They think they're going to die. The mountain is on fire. There's no way they're saying no. And the only time the Jewish people could ever ratify the Torah was on Purim, the story of Purim, which is exactly when prophecy ends. That's when prophecy wow. prophecy ended. Yeah, very cool, huh? I, I love it. So it's a fabulous, fabulous response. So what the Talmud is saying in all of its honesty is taking on Judaism as a revealed religion and saying, of course it's a revealed religion. What we're going to celebrate in just a couple of days on Shavuot is the... That's the reason why we're all here. right? It's because of, it's because of God's revelation at Sinai. But as long as God's revelation is present, something of our free will is crippled. When prophecy ends, that's when Jews can finally accept the Torah freely. And that's what makes it a full mutual covenant. So it's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing age that we live in. On the one hand, it's horrible that we don't have prophecy. We've been deprived for 2,500 years and we're orphaned in that regard for 2,500 years plus for not having prophecy anymore. On the other hand, we're not only able to develop the oral law as per of of Lublin, but we have something much bigger here, which is we actually can accept this all freely. We can actually adopt our own faith and make it our own, and it's because we've chosen to do so. That's what makes this covenant absolutely mutual. And so as we wrap up our two-year survey, I'm getting very sad and wistful. You'll forgive me for that. But in the meantime, a few of the goals that I've had the whole way through, and I just wanted to share them now that we're, we're done, one is just the broad educational point. I imagine that's what attracted many people over the last two years to come. It's just Jews should know the most important collection of texts that we have, right? at least on some basic level. I think that many very well yeshiva-educated people have no idea about many of the books that are there simply because it's not a central part of the curriculum. I don't know why, but that's the case. So it's, it's a, of critical importance that Jewish people of all backgrounds really get to know at least some familiarity with the books that we have, you know, the gift that we've given to the world, but to ourselves as well. And, and it's, good, it's good to be able to know it. Part of it is just my own trick, which is I always try to maximize what you can do in 60 minutes. It's hard to do, but it's, 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 I like giving all that extra thought to seeing, okay, 
you got 60 minutes, you could do a lot of things. How do you do the most of those things at, at, all at the same time? So the goal is to give a lot of depth rather than just a survey where I was rattling off bullet points. To me, it's important to really get to the heart and soul of what ideas the Tanakh gave to the world and specifically to us, to the Jewish people, through the prism of our tradition and contemporary scholarship. The goal in part was, and this is up to you much more than it is up to me at this stage in the game, uh, to inspire, well, now that you've gone a survey, it would be good to learn some of these books in greater depth. Right? It's like it's very nice to do an hour or two for a whole book, but I'm sure you can imagine uh, you could do a lot more with any of these books, and, and, that, and that's something which is good, and hopefully you will find offerings. KJ, I don't need to tell you. Uh, it was always hard to read the emails of coming attractions because there are just so many coming attractions and so many classes. But that's a blessing. It's a, it's a blessing to be able to be in an environment where there are just so many classes around both here and throughout the city to, to give opportunity for further exploration. To me, at least, the most important part of the whole thing, though, beyond all of those, is to build a relationship with wonderful people through Torah learning. That's what I'm all about. And I always look for people with whom I could build that relationship. And uh, it's been a very special thing going through a two-year journey. I brought in, I got it out of, out of the boxes, of course, so this is, what, this is what we did. It's actually quite a lot in, in 30, 36... Th- that, well, minus, minus this one. This will have to go in there tomorrow. <laughs> but for 37 sessions, 60 minutes apiece, again, a day and a half of our lives actually being together, it's at least for me, a lot more than a day and a half of my life that it took perhaps to, to, to get that, note, that notebook together. But, but all the same, 37 hours to be able to sit down week in, week out is something I've been looking forward to for quite some time, and it's hard to believe that we have come to an end, but I'm just very grateful to all of you who are here tonight, all of you who are, have been here throughout the course and who couldn't make it tonight or have already been, you know, been out of the course for quite a little while. It doesn't matter. It's been an incredible, incredible journey for the last couple of years. I've looked forward to this more than anything. And, and I specifically, I told the rabbis when I told them that I was, we were, our family was going to be relocating to Teaneck. And thank God, again, the move went as well as moves can go. They're aggravating, but that's okay. It's, it's life is boxes. And as long as my books are on the shelf and my kids have clothes and we have something to eat, the rest, will, the rest will get done. I'm not, I'm not too. We're, we're working hard, and that's what it is. But it's, uh, it's been a privilege being part of the KJ community, and I just wanted to thank all of you for, and KJ in general for doing that. But I told the KJ rabbis I wanted my last moment as the rabbinic scholar of KJ to be this class. And, and so this is, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out how, how it was all going to go. I told them back in whatever it was, January. So I, I said, this, this has to be the last thing that I do here formally as a rabbinic scholar. And then it's, it's just been an amazing learning experience here with the entire community and learning with so many hundreds of people, sometimes very regularly, sometimes not. But this was really the course that I looked forward to, you know, every week. I would quickly update my notes. That's what I'm going to do next, a little longer to get back to Teaneck. Any of you driving back? But in the meantime, but in the meantime you know, but update the notes and then, you know, get into the notebook, post it online and get ready for the next one. Here, all of a sudden, I'm going to do that with this one and then put this back on my shelf. And, but it, but it's, it's, a, it's a strong testament to all of the wonderful work that we've done together. So I just wanted to thank all of you for these remarkable two years. And, and, and that is all. And I look forward to seeing you in the not-too-distant future. Thank you.